Assalamualaikum and welcome to Constitution Matters with myself, Zakira Desai, for our show marking the 20th anniversary of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. As a seven-part series, Constitution Matters brings to life a joint venture on progressive constitutionalism by the Voice of the Cape Radio, the national body of the Students for Law and Social Justice, and the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. And in this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss how the Constitution responds to the rights of women in relation to religious obligations. In particular, this show will unpack whether the Constitution can operate in concert with religious obligations, in particular Islamic law as we know it, Sharia. A reminder to our listeners to join the conversation by WhatsApping us on 072-238-0712 or SMSing us on 47913. In studio with me is Dr. Tom Angier, Leila Kimi, Sheikh Munir Abdurov, and online we have Huda Faker. Assalamu alaikum, Huda. Alaikum salam. How are you today? Um, thank oh. you so much for joining us. I know it was a rush for you. Yes, yes, but I am happy to be on the on the show. Thank you for inviting me. To open the discussion, before we take our first ad break, um, Huda, could you give, provide a brief explanation of Section 15.3 of the Constitution, which speaks to religious marriage ceremonies? All right, so in terms of religious marriage ceremonies, um, the, this section doesn't prevent leg- legislation recognizing marriage where they are concluded under any tradition. Um, but as your previous um, sessions on on the constitutional issues, there is a limitation on that in, with regard to freedom of religion if it conflicts with another religion and you have to weigh the two rights together. So with uh, this freedom of religion provision, um, our organization that does impact litigation actually prompted us to make an application to the court seeking the recognition of Muslim marriage, where the status quo at the moment is that it's not legally recognized. And uh, in terms of the process that the Women's Legal Center, the organization that you mentioned, is undertaking, can you provide us a bit more detail as to why you see the need to have Muslim marriages recognized within the South African legal system? Look, as an attorney and as, an, as working for an organization that advances women's rights, our premise is to look at the Constitution as a tool to advance women's rights. Uh, first and foremost is the right to equality. And women in South Africa, the relationships are recognized in terms of um, legislation. You're looking at um, you know, civil ceremony, you're looking at recognition of customary marriages, and you're looking at the Civil Unions Act. So in contrast to that, women who are in religious marriages, they are vulnerable or marginalized as opposed to women who are legally married. So that's one aspect of of why we are challenging it. And as a result of the fact that we have many women coming to our offices, that face challenges because the Muslim marriages are not legally recognized since we have been established in in 1999. 
Now, Sheikh Abdurraf, if we can move to you. We know that Islam permits a man to marry no more than four wives. And drawing on what Hudai has just mentioned about uh, the rights of women and having it recognized within the legal system of South Africa, can you elaborate on the rules pertaining to polygamous marriages and the significance of the limitation of four wives? Yes, um, shukran for the question. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala khayri khalqillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa mwala. Yes, if you look at uh, um, Islam and uh, polygynous marriages, as we know, Islam allows polygyny uh, and doesn't allow um, polyandry. So a man can have more than one wife. However, um, there is also basically the issue of a female having more than one husband. Um, more specifically, when looking at this specific issue, um, the ayah in the Quran it does allow mathna wa thulatha wa which means it can either be two, three, or four. However, um, there is a limitation, right, as far as that is concerned. فَإِنْ خِفْتُمْ أَلَّا Right, um, you have to be fair and just and equitable between each and every one of these wives. You can't basically uh, give one a luxurious life and one not a luxurious life. Um, if that be the case, and even if you fear doing that, in that instance, by Quranic injunction, it says in rather um, take one. Before we continue with this discussion, I think, okay, sorry, we were going to take a break, but my technician saying that it's fine, we can continue. Um, so to continue then, Section 9 of the Constitution addresses the issue of equality. Based on what we've previously mentioned, what Huda has mentioned about the rights of women, can we assume that Islam places more emphasis on equity rather than equality, therefore providing each individual a set of laws that he or she requires to succeed respectively, as opposed to giving both females and males the same rights yes definitely um, and that is why we when we're looking and studying and analyzing Islam we have to look it look at it as a whole right we can't look at uh, for example uh, 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 the law of maintenance on its own the law of inheritance on its own the law of marriage and divorce on its own we have to look it at it as a, a, a complete picture um, for example if we look at the laws of of maintenance it does not even by a Quranic injunction um, require the husband to maintain the wife uh, so there uh, the wife obviously is getting more and the husband is having to spend but when one again analyzes again the Quran and speaks of inheritance, then we see that it says that if you have a son and a daughter, uh, then the son would inherit double that of the daughter. Bearing in mind that the son, when he gets married, he has to maintain his wife, he has to maintain his children. And it is in this context that we should uh, analyze and look at not equality, but more as equity in terms of Islamic uh, law. Dr. Angie, from a philosophical uh, side, why do you feel that there are there has been this rise of feminism? And if we hear what uh, Sheikh has just said, without much understanding, many people have criticized Islam for its rulings. Um, what do you think, from a philosophical point of view, women and men should be? How should they be treated in an equitable or an equal manner? Well, I'm not. Not quite sure what equity means mm. here. I mean, the uh, <coughs> sorry, the the worries would be the following. I think uh, one of the worries would be, first of all, why is there this principal distinction between what men are allowed to do and what women are allowed to do? What's the basis for that? So why not polyandry? So that's one question. 
And another one is, um, how can you ensure and enforce equitable treatment as you're, as you're outlining it? Because it so assu assuming that uh, the very notion of having more than one wife is possible uh, uh, in terms of equity, because a lot of people say, well, there might be nominal equal treat um, mm. equitable treatment, but in practice, there's always going to be mm. favoritism, and some some of the children are being favoured uh, from one marriage over another. So, why not polyandry, and also how can you ensure equity? Leila, we know that you have been eagerly wanting to say something. Uh, what is your take on what has just been said? Um, if I could just talk a little bit about the rise of feminism um, and Islam facing criticism because of that. I don't think it's the religion that needs to be criticized. I think that when we look at Islam and you look at the way it should be practiced and the way that it was revealed to us. I don't think the problem here is Islam. Islam is a feminist religion. Um, I think the problem is the people who interpret this religion and the people who then end up enforcing this religion, I think we need to look at their patriarchal ag agendas. Mm. Um, so it's not about criticizing Islam. I think it's more about criticizing and looking very deeply at those who are enforcing this religion, those who are interpreting it, those who are, um, I, I don't want to say those who are spearheading Islam in society, but I can't think of another word right now. But I think we need to look at that. And I think we need to look in the, at the inherent patriarchy in that. And that is the rise of feminism. I don't think it's to criticize the religion. I think we need to look at who's enforcing it. Yeah, somebody recently mentioned to me that uh, we need to be more progressive as Muslim thinkers. And the argument, I think, would then be that Islam in itself is a progressive religion. And it suits every time. It suits every era. So uh, we can't say that Islam is separate from being progressive. Um, Huda, if we can bring you in, um, we have been speaking about polygamous marriages. Do you feel from a, the Humans, as a representative of the Humans Legal Center that uh, encouraging polygamy violates a woman's right to her inherent dignity? Yes, look, ideally there is, there is no equality and dignity by a husband having more than one wife. So although we understand the lived reality in the Islamic context where it is adapted in a conservative manner in, in South Africa, we need to look at what role does the, the um, clergy play and also so too because of the lack of recognition there is no consistency and regulation to make sure that women are treated equally in such a relationship. So even though you strive towards monogamous marriage, the lived reality is that Islam as a religion allows for a husband to have more than one wife. But as um, was said in the panel, there are regulations around that to make sure that women are treated in a fair manner. But is that being implemented and how do we know that they are going to be treated equally because women don't have access to courts. They are prevented from having access um, easily because of the fact that Muslim marriages are not legally recognized. That's another challenge because at the end of the day it costs money and resources for women to go to court to, to assert their rights. Sheikh Abdurov, before you comment, uh, this issue of inherent dignity, 
Well, what does Islam say is the best or the most dignified way when a man decides that he wants more than one wife? What is the best way to go about uh, bringing this conversation up or does he have to bring this conversation up at all? Yes, a uh, very important question and a question that basically is uh, faced by many um, females living in South Africa and many places around the world. Um, just to basically latch on what was stated earlier on, um, there should be understood uh, a, f- a big difference between Sharia and Fiqh. Right? Sharia being uh, the actual reve- revealed uh, revelation, which is um, black letter law, which basically cannot be changed. Right? And uh, uh, a few of these verses have been uh, in terms of that. Uh, however, um, you also find the Fiqh, which is the interpretation of the of the Sharia. Um, as interpreted and obviously depending on the context and also in term, uh, depending on the something referred to as maqasr sharia the, the, the purpose of the sharia um, there's no two ways about uh, the, the, the law what is allowed it's in the Quran it is polygyny is allowed however as far as uh, the question as to when another person should uh, if, if a person for example want to get married and is there a, 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 a good way to go about it uh, a very good example would be what what's stated in the Muslim marriages bill which will be discussed later on here where uh, an application should be made to court right uh, before um, a second marriage can be uh, contracted however um, the only aspect or the most important aspect which is looked at is financial implications. Is the husband by the means to take on another wife? If, however, he's not able to do so, um, that application would be unsuccessful. And that is an example of a dignified way in terms of the current um, 2010 Muslim Marriages Bill that is basically uh, present in South Africa today. So in terms of asking direct permission from the, ex- the, the wife that he's currently married to, is there, is there any um, set in stone way that this conversation needs to be brought up? Or it, we, we know that uh, the man is allowed to take more than yeah. one wife, but is he is he required to ask that permission? Um, the long and short of it is not a requirement in terms of the, the law mm-hmm. to, to, to seek the permission. Mm-hmm. As if, for example, he, he contracts into another uh, Islamic marriage, uh, let alone, let's say, the civil marriage, if the Muslim marriages bill was enacted, um, there would be no fault as far as the second marriage is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, the offer was there, the acceptance was there, um, the dawa was mentioned, the witnesses were there. Um, technically, the, um, the, the, the marriage would be uh, valid. Um, however, if the Muslim marriages bill is enacted, um, then obviously there would might be certain other requirements that should also be met. Just not to labor on this point, uh, is there any examples from within the Sunnah or the life of the Nabi Muhammad وسلم, where we can draw from the way you, you go about a second marriage or the examples where he chose certain wives and why he chose certain wives? Um, obviously the Prophet is the best of examples. Uh, and obviously, uh, if you look at the way he dealt with things, uh, it would obviously be best uh, um, to do it in a dignified way. Um, in today's context, um, that would probably be to inform her at least 
of your intention to do so and um, if she then uh, so uh, decides to do A, B or C that would be her own uh, initiative but uh, I would advise yes that would be uh, more in light with the Sunnah of Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Huda uh, one second, Huda. Sorry, Dr. Anjay, I see that you eagerly would like to say something. Yeah, so I'm going to be blunt. So, I mean, it seems to me that the problems of taking Muhammad as a, as a model, I mean, he took child, at least one child bride, I take it. He was also um, known for being um, a violent attacker of other tribes. So that's not a feminist issue, but it's an issue. So I'm not quite sure how Muhammad is a model. And also I want to, I haven't had my question answered, which is why not polyandry mm. if we're feminists in Islam, which um, has been stated, mm. uh, and how do you ensure equity? I mean, a lot of people say Sharia courts deal with women inequitably, mm. um, and so I can understand states being reluctant to afford more powers to those courts. Sheikh, would you like to reply to the concern of the issue that the Nabi Muhammad took. I know this is quite a contested issue. No. Um, married a, or so, or was alleged to have married a young bride. Yes, certainly. Um, obviously, when looking at that specific issue, it's a very contentious issue. However, uh, in that society, right, in that time, in that uh, geographical area, uh, it was not really abnormal for a for a female to get married at, at that age. There's differences of opinion as to what the actual age was as well. Uh, even in South Africa, we find that uh, 16 might be a number. Uh, and other countries, it might even be less. Right? So within that uh, geographical area, uh, uh, at that time, these females were much more mature than we find our females today. Right? Our females at the age of, let's say, 9, 10, they're very young. But however, in that time, uh, those females were much more, 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 more mature, and it was in that context that, that actually uh, um, with uh, those who uh, um, interpret these pieces of, uh, of law. And even currently today, we find in many countries, there are also basically uh, examples of where at young ages, uh, the females... Uh, they could be betrothed, but they can't be married. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Before we get to the issue of uh, whether or not why we don't uh, have a woman marrying many more than one husband, uh, Leila, I see that you'd like to comment. Um, I think moving forward, let us just take into consideration um, our positionality um, and where we sit within our politics and our positionality within those politics. Um, and let us let's stay away from saying inflammatory things or things that are not accurate when you have not done the research. Um, I assume that when we come here, we've done enough research to be able to talk on these topics. And if we have not, then let's take into account positionality and let us be quiet and be educated about what we don't know. So the issue of uh, whether or not females can marry more than one husband. Uh, Sheikh, can you clarify uh, from an Islamic point of view, um, we know that in many cultures uh, polygamous marriages existed, yeah. exists. Uh, why is it that Islam does not include a woman marrying more than one husband? You know, basically we look at the context again, when the verses were revealed and when Islam basically applied, 
This is the, the practices that took place there. And even if you look at the number, for example, it's now two, three, and four. However, at that time, the, uh, when Islam came, it didn't actually increase it from uh, a monogamous marriage to a polygynous marriage. It was actually where there was maybe a person had up to 80 wives. <laughs> and then they had to change their, their, their mindset from 80 to either two, three, or four. They had to leave the remaining wives. Uh, so that is that is as far as the numbers are concerned. Um, in the same context, this is how it was applied. When the verse in the Quran says, "Fankihu ma taabalakum min al-nisa imathna wa thulatha wa rubaa," you are allowed to marry two, three, or four. This is basically how the verses has been interpreted and applied um, since time immemorial. Um, as to the wisdom, the hikmah behind it um, there's no specific law that says this is the reasoning as to why but there are many scholars that have actually tried to interpret these verses and say what the wisdom behind it is um, but along the short of it it doesn't specifically state there this is the reason yeah, I think it is also important to note that uh, with the advent of Islam, it came in the time of Jahiliyyah, which means the ignorant, and uh, it's, it came to destroy the social ills. Mm-hmm. And uh, you cannot, I think we, we know this, when you talk about abrogation, you cannot wean a community of things once off. It needs to be a slow mm-hmm. process. And that is why there are these serious uh, regulations when it comes to marriage and comes to talaq. Um, and we need to understand uh, the importance of it and even amongst our own community within the Muslim community when you do marry more than one wife yeah. there are serious implications and if you are not equal treat them equally um, that person has to stand for that one day but uh, Huda if we could move back to the issue of the Women's Legal Center and the issues that you have you have encountered um, hello Huda Yes, I'm here. Oh, sorry. We just thought that we lost you. Um, there has been concern within the Muslim community where we find women who are only married by Islamic rights. And they do tend to battle to secure a talaq from their husbands, even where the ruling of fasah does comply. What is the best procedure for women in these situations to do in order to ensure that their constitutional, constitutional rights are respected? I think importantly, until Muslim marriages are legally recognized, there should steps should be taken in the interim to have the marriage legally recognized by going to home affairs or there are currently some of the Islamic clergy that are registered as marriage officers. There's also the option to draw up a contract where and, and not your general contract that I think um, is presented to women to say they must respect each other and their duties, but more detailed in terms of what their rights are, access to property, etc. So, so ideally, the first step would be to, to get married legally and in the absence of that, to at least draw up a contract. The challenge is that even though I would, uh, you make the suggestion to women, is where the, the husband or the husband-to-be says, why do you need to, to, to marry legally? We married in, in the eyes of Allah. That is the most important thing. And so women don't necessarily pursue that to make sure that they do, they do get married legally. And I think that's the challenge. So even though you, there's, there's 
educated women out there, there are this progression in terms of awareness. Today you still have many challenges where women suffer as a result of, of their marriages not being legally recognized and they struggle to, to assert their rights because the reality is that women are not in equal power in a relationship. They may not be working, they may opt to stay at home to look after the children and so they in many cases are, are adversely affected when it comes to uh, financial and social consequences. Thank you so much, Huda. We will be taking a break for an ad and we will return with Constitution Matters after this. Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I am your host, Nakir Odessa, and joining me in studio is Dr. Ta- Dr. Tom Amjia, Leila Kimi, Sheikh Munid Abdurov, and online we have Huda Faker. In this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss how the Constitution responds to the rights of women in relation to religious obligations. We remind our listeners, if you have any concerns or questions on the Constitution, they can WhatsApp us on 072-238-0712 or SMS us on 47913. Now, before the break, we had quite an intense discussion on Muslim marriages and the Constitution and whether or not they can work in concert. But now we move to another quite interesting discussion on hijab and uh, Sheikh if we could bring Sheikh in here we know that you are the expert on Sharia does the Quran emphatically stipulate that a woman must be covered and is the word hijab used to refer to a woman's covering yes I'm sure for the question um, as far as the the Quran is concerned there are many ayat that refer to this specific issue um, more generally than the ayah that says إِلَّا مَا ظَهَرَ مِنْهَا that uh, the, the body should be covered except that which is normally shown right again um, when we're looking at uh, what sharia and fiqh the primary sources and its interpretation we find like for example um, this is the Shafi'i Madhab the Shafi'i school of law um, they allow a female to then show a face uh, and a hands right uh, however, the, the Hanafi school of law then allow a female, um, if for example you'd like to get married to her, she's now covered, you can then see her a f- a face, you can see her hands and you can see her, her feet as well. Alright, so we can see that there's a bit of interpretational issues concerning the um, actual uh, limitations as far as what could be seen. Alright, and um, currently what is allowed today, we even see that some have, uh, due to be it, uh, uh, um, to be safe, they have even uh, do the niqab, where the eyes are only open, the rest of the body is closed. Alright, so there is a bit of leeway as far as interpretation is concerned, but uh, the Quran does refer to the covering. And uh, scholars have also indicated that it is mandub or a good thing for Muslim men to cover their heads. Can you clarify what Islam refers to as the male aura or parts of the body that is required to be covered? And uh, is this equality? 
Yeah, um, coming back to equality is another issue. Um, if you look at clearly at the, at the text, then as you stated, there's two, two sources, that is the Qur'an and the Sunnah, which uh, constitutes a Sharia. Um, and the explanation by the scholars um, of the text would be mina surah ila rukba, right, as uh, from the navel to, to the knees. And this is basically where they say the male aura is, is, is considered. It even goes further also. If you study the text more in detail, they speak about something referred to as a slave, right, the person who is a slave, even though they state that uh, Islam came to eliminate slavery and bring it in there too. Um, there too, they have different auras, uh, and bearing in context also of the of the the time that uh, the Prophet sallallahu came down, where even clothes was mm. was was very limited, where uh, a a person used to make salah wearing a piece of clothing, and his wife could not make salah because she never had uh, enough mm. clothes to cover her, and then he would then come back home from the mosque, give it to the wife, and then she could make the salah. So um, basically, this is a context which the the verses were revealed. Huda, hello. Yes, yes, I'm here. Oh, sorry. Um, so the Women's Legal Center obviously deals with many with different women from different walks of life. Are there any concerns about whether or not um, women are instructed by their husbands to don the hijab, and how does that infringe on their freedom of religion? In terms of freedom of religion, it's more about a, a, the perspective of the Women's Legal Center is more the right of choice. So if she chooses to wear hijab or not, that is in terms of her constitutional right. Whether she, uh, one, uh, whether she is listening to an instruction from her husband, that is another issue. But in terms of whether she wants to do it, whether hijab or not, that is her choice. And there are challenges, um, there have been challenges within a work environment, especially where women wear hijab and they do have been told not to wear scarf within the work environment. And that is where the freedom of religion will come in, which it gives them the choice to, dis to, to wear the hijab and where they would be able to, to challenge that from the with the employer. We actually saw this quite recently in Europe where the issue of religious symbols was brought up and uh, the European, European Court said that uh, companies are allowed to, if at their discretion, ban people or ban employees from wearing any religious symbols. And this was based on two cases of women wearing hijab at work. Well, how does our constitution protect our religious freedom in this regard? Yes, uh, um, our constitution is very progressive, as well as in the historical context of our history, we would definitely encourage freedom of religion in being able to, uh, women having the choice to wear what they want. And if they choose to wear a hijab, then, then they should, would be able to, to wear so. In a shorter hand uh, understanding, what is the best way if you find yourself in this situation where you find that your religious obligations are being curtailed by a company, what is the best way to address this issue? There would usually be um, policies in place at, uh, with the employer where there were challenges in terms of normal uh, labor procedures such as first your grievance and then a disciplinary inquiry, etc. And uh, through those kinds of channels. But otherwise it would go to, to the CCM and even end up in the labor court if necessary. 
because um, that would be based on your constitutional right to, to freedom of religion, to be able to express that. Now, Dr. Angio, we know that you'd like to comment. Uh, what is your understanding of hijab in terms of philosophical point of view? Uh, do you think that it does infringe on the rights of a female to express herself or to her, or do you feel that she, she should choose whether or not she should wear it? Well, I think that most people um, outside the Muslim community are quite sympathetic to the scarf and the hijab. Um, as a sign of modesty, and I think that there's uh, very little issue with that. Where people have issues are with more extreme forms of covering, for instance, the burqa, and that's, I think, why countries like France and Belgium have banned it in public. And I think a lot of um, uh, companies would have issues, or, or, you know, public service providers have issues with the burqa because it's completely camouflaging of the person and you can't communicate with them properly. Now, in those kind of situations, I think... By, okay, can we clarify, you're referring to the face covering, the niqab? Yeah, and okay. the, what's referred to at least as the burqa in those countries. Okay. Um, Leila, would you like to weigh in? Um, I just think... In, in terms of what we're talking about right now, we're talking about hijab, I think that it's important to note that um, in, the con in, in the context of hijab, it's always a woman's choice whether she should cover herself or not. Um, I'm having a little bit of difficulty understanding what Dr. Andrea is saying in terms of not being able to communicate with a woman properly if she is covered in niqab. I, d I don't understand. I, I'm just uh, wondering. Communication understand. is more than. Uh, about voice, it's about facial recognition as well. Okay, I think we can continue this discussion. Uh, it's going to be quite interesting after this ad. to Constitution Matters. I'm your host Dakira Desai and joining me in studio is Dr. Tom Angia, Leila Kimi and Sheikh Munir Abduro. And online we have Huda Faker. In this episode of Constitution Matters we are discussing how the Constitution responds to the rights of women in relation to religious obligations. Now we have a stream of WhatsApps coming in. Uh, if we could just go one step back to our previous topic of Muslim marriages. Um, they have there's been a number of uh, issues that people have raised, but I'll just take one interesting one. Uh, Huda, if you could answer this. Yes. If a woman has four husbands, um, if a woman has four husbands as an example and she falls pregnant, uh, what uh, this person is saying, what would she do? Okay, I don't think that this person, I think this person was being um, ironic. <laughs> so let's le leave that one. But uh, in terms of uh, the a woman who is uh, married to a man who has more than one wife, uh, or more than one husband, sorry, um, and she decides to go for a divorce, and there is issues with um, within with the divide division of properties and things. What is the best way that a woman in the, these cases can go forward? Ideally, um, you would need to, uh, which which uh, she's alluded to in terms of the. There's current legislation which recognizes polygyny, and that's in, in the form of the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act. Um, and so before you can take another wife, that issue of the property would then first be addressed with wife number one. 
In the case of our context where there's no legal recognition and the husband already has more than one wife, that needs to be distributed in terms of at least looking at the contributions that they have made. But first and foremost, your best case scenario would be to first sort out the property before um, the husband takes wife number two. The challenge is that it's, it's very difficult where you have to look at the length of the marriage, you need to look at whether, you know, how long he's been married to each wife, when he acquired his property, also in terms of what she has contributed. So there would be an overlap with it in terms of, of, of the marriages to each other. So it, it's quite difficult, and that is one of the, the reasons why it is important to regulate Muslim marriages. So mm. those issues can be addressed before the situation arises. Because yeah. even where a, a wife goes to the MJC or to an uh, imam or sheikh to say, look, I'd like to get divorced, and there's a valid reason for a fatah, the issue of regulation of the property is a challenge. And also because at the end of the day, what the chefs would recommend, they don't have any clout in terms of enforcing yeah. that recommendation. Thank you, Huda. I, oh, I um, apologize for cutting you. They were just running short for time. So uh, if we could go around the table just in the last uh, 30 seconds, uh, stating who uh, saying whether or not um, you believe that South Africa or uh, South Africans are more tolerant of accepting other religions and cultures. Than who? Sorry. Uh, oh, so then, then if you look at the way the world is going now, we see there's a rise of Islamophobia. Do you feel that South Africans are more tolerant? Unfortunately, we are in our last three seconds. Yeah. So well, I, I take it that South African um, forms of Islam are slightly different from, say, in Saudi Arabia or other countries. So what we're dealing with here is uh, less problematic than it might be in certain other countries. So, yeah. yes, I think it's relatively tolerant. And yourself, yeah. Yes, definitely. You know, we look at um, the constitution of Africa and the right to equality, the right to freedom of religion and so forth. I think that um, many of these cases that we have seen are happening around other countries around the world. Um, according to what I've seen happening in the constitutional court, uh, I don't think the same thing would happen uh, as far as those specific cases are concerned yeah. because uh, our judges, and they bound by the constitution, would basically be much, more, much, much more tolerant. And uh, that's a wrap of an interesting discussion. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Tom Angier, Leila Kimi, Sheikh Munir Abdurov, and Huda Faker. Just a reminder to our listeners that the views expressed in this show is not necessarily the views of the Voice of the Cape, its management, or its staff. You are listening to Constitution Matters with myself, Dakir Odesai. Assalamu alaikum and good evening.